Go ahead and remain standing and grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18 as we continue. I was thinking what a great blessing it is for me to have been, had this opportunity after teaching the Word now going into our 30 years, teaching through the Bible, I think probably almost twice, I think completely, but having the chance to go through Luke's gospel on a more in-depth basis to really dig in and see so many of the things sometimes you don't take the time to see. And so I've really been enjoying it, and I pray you have too. It seems like at some point the Lord's going to deal with the issues in your life. It doesn't matter what book you're in, but somewhere he's going to deal with the issues in your life. Aren't you glad for that? And, uh, and sometimes just say, oh, Lord, don't, don't do that, please. <laughs> I don't want to do that today. By the way, we did get some more copies in of We Will Not Be Silenced. I've been talking about this. This is the book that we made available. Well, this is our fourth order. Um, we, I think this is like 170 books or something like that at this point. And you guys in the first service have been stealing them all. So <laughs> the second service hasn't been able to get any. So we put some aside today for the second service. But there are a few, if any of you are here and didn't get it, again, it's $5 if you read it, $10 if you don't. So um, it's, it's our special deal for you. We're going to continue at verse 18 here as we continue in our study. And we're told here that a ruler questioned him, Jesus, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, well, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You may be seated. Today in our study, we're looking at the gospel according to Jesus as told here through the story of the rich young ruler. And to kind of give you context of where we are here in chapter 18, we know that Jesus is now within weeks, if not days, from when he will make his entrance up into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, where he knows beyond all doubt that at this particular Passover feast, he himself is going to be the Passover lamb of God who will be sacrificed for the sin of the world. Much of the interaction that has taken place in chapter 17, 18 centers on the kingdom of God and that which is to come. Remember, the Pharisees had approached Jesus and they asked him when, future tense, is the kingdom of God going to come, what they were expecting. And in response, Jesus answered to them that the outward physical manifestation of the kingdom won't come until Jesus returns, until he comes, the Son of Man returns from heaven in glory. However, Jesus said, until that time, the kingdom is now already present. And by that means, for all those who have the kingdom of God in their heart, where Jesus is ruling and reigning over their heart. And to this disciples, Jesus said, at the time of his return, he said, it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah and the days of Lot prior to the judgments of God, that people would be eating, they would be drinking, they would be marrying and partying on, 
as if there is no tomorrow, no accountability for their actions. And just like it was in the days of Lot, in the days of Noah, that the world at that time would be filled with chaos and corruption and confusion and deception, lawlessness, unrestrained sexual perversion. But all who are faithful and are waiting his return, he assures them that you can rest assured that the day of vindication is going to come when that one who is just will come and vindicate every believer for the faith by which we have trusted him. Now, in that context, Jesus went on to show that until that time, he said, that at all times we ought to pray and not lose heart. It was in the context of his second coming that he said that, to which he added also a parable in which he told the contrast telling of a persistent widow who came pleading for justice from a reluctant, ungodly judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And it's as if Jesus said, in contrast to that parable, that if a poor, persistent widow comes pleading for justice from a selfish, godless judge who does not fear God and has no respect for men, how much more should God's children expect to receive what is just and right from our loving Heavenly Father? And so he said, until that time, really, in essence, he's saying, what I want you to do is I want you to pray persistently, wait patiently, and persevere in faith expectantly. Now, last week in our study, we went on, as we heard Jesus tell another parable, it says to some people who trusted in themselves and their own righteous acts, and they view others with contempt. In other words, the issue there is self-righteousness those who would look to themselves as far as trying to find their acceptance to God by their own works. And making his point, Jesus went on to give a contrast between a self-righteous Pharisee and a publican, a tax collector, who both went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, as he approached the temple, he did so in pride and in self-glory. He's boasting of his own works, of his righteousness, of, of fasting and tithing and thanking God that he is not like other sinners, much like that tax collector over there. However, in contrast, the, con the tax collector also comes to pray, but he comes in humility. He won't even lift his eyes toward heaven, and he beats his breast, and he owns his sin, and he pleads for God's mercy, calling himself the sinner. And Jesus said of the two that it is the tax collector who went home justified before God that day. And the principle that you should have there may be underlined in your Bibles. The big idea there is that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a theme that is brought all the way from Genesis to Revelation. God is opposed to the proud. So if you want to be on the wrong side of God, just live in your pride. It'll put you as an adversary of God. We must never approach God in our pride, seeking his favor on the basis of what we do. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. Now, good works, we know this, are important. 
God treasures the works that we do. But when we as believers do our good works, we do them as a response to God's grace, not to earn his favor. It is really a cause and effect relationship. Jesus is the cause and our works are the effect. Because we love him, because of what he's done for us, we seek to do his work. And it's around that context that we saw Jesus and receiving small children, again, emphasizes the importance of coming to the Lord in humility when he said, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And this is what we saw Jesus desires for every one of us, that we would come to him as children, not to be children, but like children, not childish but like children. Get that in your head. He's not saying, I want you to be childish. No, he says, I want you to be like children. I want you to come void of pride and simplicity and transparency and a willingness to trust God in obedience as a gracious and loving heavenly father. And so now we move on here to verse 18 where we're told this wonderful story about the rich young ruler and the ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, What should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you put the pieces together, this is one of those stories that is given in three of the Gospels. They are the synoptics. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptics because they're very similar. But it gives you an overall understanding that Luke tells us that he is a ruler. And perhaps he is a synagogue ruler. We're not really told. But what we are told in saying he's a ruler, that he has authority, he has power over other people that he is responsible, that he is entrusted with important things. We are also told uh, in other places that he is young, he is religious, he is sincere. It is safe to assume that he has probably had a much better education. And from the context, you learn here that he has great morals, that he has sought to live his life honorably before others, to live right and to be what is pleasing. And all accounts, they all emphasize that he is extremely wealthy. I mean, this is big bucks guy. He owns lots of property. You know, you know see, that was important for Jews because Jews believed that material wealth was a sign of God's blessing and that poverty was a sign of God's displeasure, much like a lot of the false teachers do today. They don't see it through the eyes of the scripture here, but thus he is properly defined for us as the rich young ruler. But he has everything that you would say a person could possibly want. He has power, the three Ps. He has power, position, and he has possessions. And these seems to be the quest of most people in the world's eyes. And from the average eye, when you look at him and say, this is a great guy. I mean, he's what you call a dream sheep. He is the kind of sheep that every shepherd says, man, I want you in my flock. And if you're a pastor and you're looking for somebody to join your church, you're thinking, that's the one I want right there. He's got everything I think we could ever really want. But even better notice this, you know, he's a seeker. I mean, this is the kind of guy that every parent says, I want to marry my daughter. You know, he's, he's got it all, and he's a seeker, and he's searching for truth to life's important questions. And notice he seeks Jesus out. He's that kind of a seeker, and he would really go well with a lot of the seeker-friendly churches today who are looking for just this kind of person. However, you find that despite all that he has, everything that he's got going for him, there is a sense of want in his heart 
There is a void. There's something lacking. And he comes to Jesus, and he's seeking the answer to what that could possibly be. And it all centers around this issue of eternal life. Mark tells us that when he came to Jesus, that he fell on his knees before him. That really signifies that he is in desperation. But he has this spiritual issue. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice this, what shall I do? And by eternal life, people, he's seeking more than just quantity of life. He is looking for quality of life. He's just not saying, I want to live forever, but I want to live forever in blessing. That was the way they understood this idea of eternal life. It's not just so I can keep on living and living and living. That's not appealing to me. No, what has me joyful about thinking eternity is the quality of life that we will have when we're with the Lord. And so he knows there's something lacking in his life. And and I think of this abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Did you know that? He came that you would have life and have it abundantly. And he doesn't mean just then. He's talking about now and then. Now, just imagine, people, this is you. You're at work, you're walking down the road, and you have a heart for evangelism. I mean, you really have the heart to see people saved. And along comes this person who is desperately seeking answers, and he comes to you and he says to you, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let me ask you, what would you say? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, here it is. This is a big fish that has swam into your net. He is on your hook, and he is ready to be reeled in. He's a ripe piece of fruit that is just begging to be picked. There he is. I think to myself, what was Judas thinking? I cannot help but think Judas and maybe some of the others are thinking, all right, man, things are really starting to look up. Look at this. Finally, we get someone coming to us who's got some respectability, somebody who's got some clout, somebody who's got position and power, and finally, we get someone who can lend us some legitimacy, someone who's just not some ordinary, uneducated fisherman or tax collector or zealot or one of those. We finally get somebody who's going to make us really look good. And perhaps Jesus is, or, or Judas is thinking to himself, man, I hope Jesus doesn't blow this. Man, I, I mean, he's seen Jesus offend people before, and he's thinking, man, don't. sweating it, man. What's Jesus going to say? What in the world is he going to do? I mean, this is the kind of guy you want to win. You ever notice this, that sometimes we see people who are like movie stars and stuff, and think, oh, wouldn't it be great if they were saved? Wouldn't it be great? And it would be. It really would be. But sometimes we think it is because they're such cool people. Wouldn't it be great what they would lend to the kingdom if they just came into the kingdom and we could say, oh, they're one of us. And I think that's where these guys are at. I really do. At least Judas, I would think. But this rich young ruler, he doesn't come to Jesus as an adversary. He comes genuinely seeking an answer. And he addresses Jesus as good teacher or master. 
In 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I mean, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now, people, if you're interested in witnessing the way that Jesus taught us how and shows us how here, I want you to pay attention. The very first thing he does is he takes him to God as the standard of what is really good. The very first thing he does is establish the perimeters of his question and what he means by that term good and the standard that he uses to define it. He says, why do you call me good? No one is truly good except God alone. Now Jesus here is not denying his deity. What he is doing is simply drawing the man to the standard by which he has come to him, that which is good. God is the only truly good one and moral perfect one. That's why we call him holy. He is set apart. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalms 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and the faithfulness to all generations. We have that saying, we say the Lord is good and you say all the time. time. Some of you get it anyway. (laughs) We could even try that again. The Lord is good. Thank you very much. You did really good. God himself is the standard of what is really good. What is morally perfect. So you think someone is good The question is, compared to what? Or compared to who? How does your goodness compare to God? I don't know how many times I've heard people talk about, oh, I just admire so-and-so, they're such a good person. Well, do they know the Lord? No, they don't know the Lord, but they're good. They're really good, and you go to the funeral, and and sometimes you hear, oh, he was such a good person, and you know, as a very pleasant person he was. Or she. And you can say, yeah, did they know Jesus? No. But they were really good. And sometimes by that, what we mean is we think if anybody deserves a place in heaven, it's got to be them. Because they've lived such good lives. They gave a lot. They did a lot of things. And again, we saw in our study last week of the Pharisee who comes before God and he's impressed with himself because he's a good man. I mean, he gives a lot. He ties. He fasts. He He's not like other sinners, and so he thinks he's really good. Compare yourself to others, though, and you might not look so bad. But before others, you might look really bad. But again, the question is, how do you look when you're compared to God? How do you look? God alone is good. That's why sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel is good people, is moral people. Ryan was just telling me they went on a little trip this week and they were with a bunch of people who are really moral, but they're lost. And you're saying, yeah, but they're just good people. And it is fun to be around good people. I mean, there's nothing joyful but being around a bunch of of rotten people. When we, we live in Portland, there's a lot of rotten people. 
You know, you look at the movie and think, you know, if you're just good enough and do so many good deeds and you come back, you know, the Lord's going to go to heaven. It's going to make your way. That's not the gospel. That is not it. How do you measure up next to God's moral perfection? And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does when he presents his gospel to the Romans. First thing he does is he leads them to rightly assess their own goodness compared to God's righteousness and his holiness. Quoting from Psalms 14 and 53, he says, There none is righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And Paul is saying, in essence, there's no one who measures up to his perfection. There's no one who can measure up to his standard. No one. You might be morally better than other people, but how, again, do you measure up to God? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first thing he does is he brings them to God. And he reveals who God is in his holiness. But secondly, he takes them to the law so that he might see the truth about himself. First, he has to see the truth about God. Now he sees the truth about himself. The man wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life. And so what does Jesus do? He says, you know the commandments. You know them. You know you don't commit murder and don't commit adultery and don't steal and all those things. So he draws the man now into the light of where he stands next to the law. And Jesus says, okay, so you want to know what you can do to inherit eternal life? Be perfect. Just be perfect. Measure up to God's righteous standards by obeying the Ten Commandments perfectly. By the way, the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. These are the commandments. And it's interesting to see which commandments Jesus uses here. You see, there are Ten Commandments. We all know that. And they were given to Moses in two tablets. Well, on the first tablet were four of them which dealt with our relationship with God, and on the second tablet were six of them that dealt with our relationships to one another and the standards of God. So when Jesus speaks to the man, he brings out from the second tablet, and he talks about five of the six. And he says, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, steal, lie, honor your father and mother. Um, the six we know he is not included here, which has to do with coveting, and Matthew also includes that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, kind of the whole gist of the whole thing. But as Jesus is making the list here, I think the man's feeling pretty, pretty good. Because he says, don't murder. Well, I've never murdered anybody. Check. Awesome. You know, don't commit adultery. I never took another man's wife. Check. Doing pretty good. Don't steal. I never stole anything in my life. Check. Don't bear false witness. Well, maybe a few small little white lies, but nothing to get worked up about. Check. And there he goes, honor your father and mother. Yes, I'm a good son. They love me. I love them. They would say so to your face. So he's feeling pretty good. And he says, all these things. He says, I have kept since my youth. I mean, this seeker is feeling good about himself. Five out of five. He's passing the test, probably enjoying it, all these things. Since I was a wee little lad, 
I have followed all of these things, meaning by most standards, he was probably a pretty weird kid. <laughs> never told a lie, never stole anything. One thing you know for sure is that he was not there on the Sermon of the Mount. He missed that one. Because there, Jesus says, you've heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, but whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says, you, you, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. No, I think he missed that sermon. And I think Jesus gave that sermon many times, not just once. We saw the sermon on the plane, very similar. So far, the man's feeling good. But Jesus talking about the issues of the heart. What am I still lacking? I can't help but believe this man is proud of himself as a good moral human being. And maybe at this point, his answer, he might have felt like when he asked the Lord what he still lacks, that perhaps the Lord is, would say to him, hey, you got nothing to worry about, man. You got nothing to worry about. You are just the kind of person we're looking for. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. In verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. I see all that you got, but there's something you lack. Now, this is just one thing that Jesus picks up. For sure, there was many things. But if you do this, then you can come follow me. Go and sell everything you got. Get rid of all your stuff. Sell it all and give it all to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. After all, isn't that what Jesus encourages us to do? to put treasure in heaven where thief does not steal, moth does not rot. Go and sell it all, then after that. Maybe in someone's mind, maybe at this point, Judas is, oh. Why did he have to say that? Why couldn't he just bring him along the guy was so ready and so ripe. And, but when Jesus talks to the man, he touches the nerve and the core of his real spiritual issue. And that which in his life has caused him to lose favor with God. In this, Jesus exposes that issue that has kept him from knowing the fullness of God's grace. Because look what happens in verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. We're not really told what his sadness led him to. We don't know. We're not told. 
All we are told here is that when he came seeking answers to what he could do for himself, he hits a brick wall. And he goes away grieving because he's very rich. He's extremely rich. Now, you need to make it really clear here that the moral of the story that Jesus is not saying, if you want to really make sure you go to heaven, that you go and sell all your stuff and give it all to the poor. That's not what he's saying here. No, he's dealing with the issue of the heart in this man. He's confronting him with the truth about God, the truth about himself, and the thing that is so critical for him to settle in order for him to really find what he's really seeking for. When Jesus lists some of these Ten Commandments, he doesn't list them all. Again, we saw that he didn't talk about the one about coveting. I mean, the Apostle Paul said it was that one alone that got him going. And Romans 7, 7, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But he says, it's there, man. He says, I was exposed because I'm a covetous person. But the issue is far more than just coveting. How does he measure up against the first table of the commandments? You know, the one that says, you shall have no other gods before me. Or the second one that you must worship the right God, that you must not make for yourself any graven image or worship any other thing, that there's to be no rival to the throne of God in your life, that you must worship God alone and you must worship the right God. Not one that you make up, not one that you fashion in your own likeness, but God for who he is. You see, you could really define idols as anything that occupies that supreme place in your life that only belongs to God, that which you give your devotion to. It can be anything. It can be an idea or a concept. But the Bible tells us God is a jealous God, and not because he is jealous of us. He is jealous for us because that's who he is. He's a consuming God. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is there, your desires of your heart will also be. You want to know what it is? Just look for where your heart is. Look for the affections of your heart. What's most important in your life? What is the thing that could get in the way between you and a right relationship with God? Whatever it is that would keep you from worshiping him and seeking him alone. What is that? It could be a hobby. It could be your money. It could be your house. It could be your boat. No matter what it is, it's gotten in the way. You see, I doubt the man has a physical shrine that he worships. But there is something that has consumed his heart and ruled over his heart to the point where it has kept him away from knowing the fullness of God. You see, it seems his possessions possessed him, that he was the servant in bondage to his own riches. And Jesus had said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either you'll hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He says, this is not what you can do. You can't do this. Here's the illustration. 
Since this man is looking to himself for eternal life, Jesus gives him a clear choice. You can choose to worship God and rid yourself of all those things and then come follow me, or you can hold on to yourself. And you can hold on to the things that mean the most to you. We've seen in our studies several times that it isn't money that is really the problem. Money is a tool. It's something that we utilize. It's a utility. It is the love of money, Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, the Bible tells us there was a lot of wealthy, godly people in history. But the one thing you notice about them is that they had a fear of God that ruled over their heart and their soul. And it's not talking about just having money. He's talking about that which would get between you and God. When it comes down to it for this man, the God he loves the most wins. It's the ruler of men is now ruled by his wealth. He loves his money more than he would desire eternal life. Money we've seen is a great servant, but it's a very poor master. And so why does Jesus take him to the law? Because before this man can truly be saved, what he needs more than anything else in the world is to know that he's a sinner in need of a savior. That's what he needs. You see, Paul said that the purpose of the law is to expose us to the truth about ourselves, about how hopeless and unable we all are to save ourselves by our own good works. That sometimes you have to come to the point, Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, our pedagogy to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And since the man here is looking to himself, Jesus says, well, here's the tutor. I'm going to use the law now to show you something. The law tells you and it teaches you, you cannot save yourself. It teaches you that you need, you desperately need a savior to do what you cannot do. The law teaches us that we can't do this. We can't earn it. Romans 3.20 says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Oh, someone might say, well, I realize I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm pretty good if you compare me to most people. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now what this man needed more than anything else is to see himself in light of God's perfection and in light of the law and to see that he is one who needs a savior. No matter how good he perceives himself to be, he could not be good enough Dr. Ironside once told an experience he had as a young boy. He said, once I attended a meeting where a missionary was speaking to a group of youngsters, and halfway through the message, he suddenly stopped and said, I'm going to tell you the kind of gospel we preach to the people in Africa. But first of all, I want to know how many of you are good boys here in the room today? He said, well, we all wanted to raise our hands, but none of us did because our mothers were there. (laughs) 
And after a lengthy pause, he said, well, that's fine, since the message I have for you is exactly the same as the one I tell the children over in Africa. God loves bad boys. Because he came to save sinners. Notice that Jesus tried to lead him to repentance. You see, in telling him to go and sell all his possessions, he was revealing to him that which kept him away from God. That which he had loved more than even the thought of coming to God. It's important because I observed a lot of the gospels that are being preached in our day that very few of them even deal with at all repentance. The gospel, according to Jesus, demands that sinners repent of their sin. If you go through the New Testament, you realize the full message is repent and believe. Repent, turn from, turn to. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ. And before any of that could happen, Jesus says, do this and then follow me. He leads him to himself. Get rid of all anything that separates us, anything you're holding on to. Come to me, and then we'll settle things. But Jesus left the choice to the man. John 6, 28, the disciples have said to him, what shall we do so that we may Work the works of God. And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work that God's looking for. To believe in the one whom he has sent. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, the gospel ultimately is settled on that wonderful truth of what Jesus has done for us. After we're done with us, we come to what he gives to us. Through his son. You know, all world religions have one thing in common. They all have a work system by which you can merit your favor. It is Christianity alone that stands upon the work that God has done for us. And that is the basis. Now, we're told in this story again, he went away sad, and it is sad. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know whether he has a change of heart or whatever happens, but we know he leaves sad. And it's sad because he's a good moral man who has a lot to offer the world. But in the end, he's going to forfeit everything he's got. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And thus we see here this story where we see the gospel according to Jesus. That tells us that no one can be saved by what you do. That God is the only standard by which we are to be measured and that We are all guilty before God according to the law, condemned by our works, and that he calls us to repent, to turn away from anything that would keep us 
and follow Jesus, the one whom he sent, to bear the weight of our sin. And that's the gospel according to Jesus. I'm a little bit concerned because I see you witnessing today it doesn't confront people with their sinfulness and their helplessness. Giving the idea how desperate they really are for a savior. I think there's a lot of churches out there who have people that are intrigued by Jesus and people that are religious, but in fact have become churches full of rich young rulers who've never had to be confronted with that which would keep them from the fullness of God. You know, Jesus tells this man the truth, and again, I'm not sure, I can't say, but if, but if Judas is who I think he was, I think he was really disappointed because somehow Jesus is letting this guy go. So why does Jesus do this? Well, we're told in Mark the answer to that. Mark 10, 21 says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It's because Jesus loved the man. He told him the truth. He gave him the truth. And there are so many seekers today in seeker churches, and they are seeking to come to Jesus on their own terms. As long as we can have things our way, as long as we can still be comfortable in our sin and not have to turn back, yeah, I'm into this, I want to go to heaven, but I just, you know, don't talk to me about repentance, man. Don't deal with something and leap, touch my comfort zone. Keep it positive. You know, don't talk, you talk about love, that's cool, you can talk about grace, but you start talking about judgment and sin, and you talk about these other things, man, you're going to lose me real quick. And there's all kinds of it. Churches making nice homes for rich young rulers unthreatened by the truth that is void of repentance. And it's kind of like just come to the Lord and just kind of, Add them on to your list of the many things you love in life. He's more of an additive than he is anything. You see, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And there's only one gospel that has power to save you eternally, and that's the gospel according to Jesus. That's that gospel, and what a wonderful gospel it is. I'm so thankful because, you see, I have to come to terms with this stuff all the time, and I think you do too. Those things that kind of come into your life, and they really become things that get in the way. And the Lord knew it. But it's an issue we have to settle. We come to God on the terms that he's given to us. Listen, I really believe that in knowing his grace, knowing myself, I still confess that I'm a person who needs his grace every day. Man, do I need his grace every day. But he's free to give it every day. Just when we call out to him, he's a merciful and gracious, loving God. And I'm so glad to be his child. 
And I'll tell you something, I don't feel like I'm better than anybody else. Because I know that we're all here by the same basis, people. Some of you, yeah, you're better than other people. Some of you, you got things that others don't, but I'll tell you something, what we all desperately need is the grace of God. That's the only way we'll ever find acceptance, just by his grace. So you wanna trust in yourself? You can. Or you can come to terms with what he says. Repent and turn to me. This morning we're gonna have communion and you came, you were all given a communion. Anybody not get one that's here? Maybe the ushers can raise your hand if you didn't get one. But I want this morning, you know what, when we do communion, and I've said this many times over, we are saying one more time, God, we trust you. We still believe that this is the only thing by which we can have a true relationship with you. This, that your blood was shed, your body was broken for us. So this morning, I want you to pray, and as you're praying, examine yourself. Just ask the Lord. Maybe there's something lacking in your life. Maybe you do know the Lord, and you're just, we're all in a process of growth. Maybe the Lord's just saying, you know, there's something in your life that has gotten in the way. And it needs to be settled. There's something that has just consumed you and gotten between you and the Lord, and he wants you to settle it. And then he wants you to receive the truth about what he's done for you in communion. Have the courage to listen to the Lord. And this morning when we eat and we drink, we're doing it in faith, believing that his grace is sufficient for us. Father, we thank you. Lord, we pray this morning that as we prepare our hearts right now, as we get ready, Lord, to partake of communion as an emblem of our fellowship with you through the work that you did for us, I pray, Father, that you would minister truth to our hearts. We are so grateful. So grateful, Lord, for Jesus. I pray, Father, this morning that if we examine ourselves, Lord, and we see things, God, that you would give us the assurance, Lord, that you're tender and merciful. And Lord, that you would give us the courage to lay them down before you today. You know what they are.